Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is March 2021. This month we're going to be doing Anne Radcliffe. I don't know if we're going to have any guests to talk about the originator of the, what I like to call the Scooby-Doo ending, and gothic literature as we know it, and motherfucking Radcliffe. All right. Uh, except for that intro, uh, the rest of this should be family-friendly, and I hope you enjoy it. Remember, Black Clock Audio Tales, uh, Radio Free Oleander. You can also check out Articulate Warbling from time to time. Recording by Martin Geeson in Hazelmere, Surrey. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 4, Chapter 11. Ah, happy hills, ah, pleasing shade, ah, fields beloved in vain. Where once my careless childhood strayed, a stranger yet to pain, I feel the gales that from ye blow, a momentary bliss bestow, as waving fresh their gladsome wing, my weary soul they seem to soothe. Grey. On the following morning, Emily left Toulouse at an early hour, and reached La Vallée about sunset. With the melancholy she experienced on the review of a place which had been the residence of her parents and the scene of her earliest delight, was mingled after the first shock had subsided a tender and undescribable pleasure. For time had so far blunted the acuteness of her grief that she now courted every scene that awakened the memory of her friends. In every room where she had been accustomed to see them, they almost seemed to live again and she felt that La Vallée was still her happiest home. One of the first apartments she visited was that which had been her father's library, and here she seated herself in his armchair, and while she contemplated with tempered resignation the picture of past times which her memory gave, the tears she shed could scarcely be called those of grief. Soon after her arrival, she was surprised by a visit from the venerable Monsieur Barreau, who came impatiently to welcome the daughter of his late respected neighbour to her long-deserted home. Emily was comforted by the presence of an old friend, and they passed an interesting hour in conversing of former times, and in relating some of the circumstances that had occurred to each since they parted. The evening was so far advanced when Monsieur Barreau left Emily that she could not visit the garden that night. But on the following morning she traced its long-regretted scenes with fond impatience, and as she walked beneath the groves which her father had planted, and where she had so often sauntered in affectionate conversation with him, his countenance, his smile, even the accents of his voice returned with exactness to her fancy, and her heart melted to the tender recollections. This, too, was his favourite season of the year, at which they had often together admired the rich and variegated tints of these woods, and the magical effect of autumn lights upon the mountains. And now the view of these circumstances made memory eloquent. As she wandered pensively on, she fancied the following address. To Autumn. Sweet autumn, how thy melancholy grace steals on my heart, as through these shades I wind. 
soothed by thy breathing sigh, I fondly trace each lonely image of the pensive mind. Loved scenes, loved friends, long lost, around me rise, And wake the melting thought, the tender tear. That tear, that thought, which more than mirth I prize, Sweet as the gradual tint that paints thy year. Thy farewell smile with fond regret I view, Thy beaming light soft gliding o'er the woods, Thy distant landscape touched with yellow hue While falls the lengthened gleam, Thy winding floods now veiled in shade, Save where the skiff's white sails swell to the breeze And catch thy streaming ray. But now, e'en now, the partial vision fails, and the wave smiles as sweeps the cloud away. Emblem of life, thus chequered is its plan, thus joy succeeds to grief, thus smiles the varied man. One of Emily's earliest inquiries after her arrival at La Vallée was concerning Teresa, her father's old servant, whom it may be remembered that Monsieur Quenel had turned from the house when it was let, without any provision. Understanding that she lived in a cottage at no great distance, Emily walked thither, and on approaching was pleased to see that her habitation was pleasantly situated on a green slope, sheltered by a tuft of oaks, and had an appearance of comfort and extreme neatness. She found the old woman within, picking vine stalks, who, on perceiving her young mistress, was nearly overcome with joy. "'Ah, my dear young lady,' said she, "'I thought I should never see you again in this world "'when I heard you was gone to that outlandish country. "'I have been hardly used since you went. "'I little thought they would have turned me out "'of my old master's family in my old age.' "'Emily lamented the circumstance, "'and then assured her that she would make her latter days comfortable.' and expressed satisfaction on seeing her in so pleasant an habitation. Teresa thanked her with tears, adding, Yes, mademoiselle, it is a very comfortable home, thanks to the kind friend who took me out of my distress, when you was too far off to help me, and placed me here. I little thought, but no more of that. And who was this kind friend? said Emily. Whoever it was, I shall consider him as mine also. Ah, mademoiselle, that friend forbade me to blazon the good deed. I must not say who it was. But how you are altered since I saw you last. You look so pale now and so thin, too. But then there is my old master's smile. Yes, that will never leave you, any more than the goodness that used to make him smile. Alas a day, the poor lost a friend indeed when he died. Emily was affected by this mention of her father, which Teresa, observing, changed the subject. I heard, mademoiselle, said she, that Madame Cheron married a foreign gentleman after all and took you abroad. How does she do? Emily now mentioned her death. Alas, said Teresa, if she had not been my master's sister, I should never have loved her. She was always so cross. But how does that dear young gentleman do, Monsieur Valancourt? He was a handsome youth and a good one. Is he well, mademoiselle? Emily was much agitated. 
A blessing on him, continued Teresa. Ah, my dear young lady, you need not look so shy. I know all about it. Do you think I do not know that he loves you? Why, when you was away, mademoiselle, he used to come to the chateau and walk about it, so disconsolate. He would go into every room in the lower part of the house, and sometimes he would sit himself down in a chair, with his arms across and his eyes on the floor, and there he would sit and think and think for the hour together. He used to be very fond of the south parlour, because I told him it used to be yours. And there he would stay, looking at the pictures which I said you drew, and playing upon your lute that hung up by the window, and reading in your books till sunset. And then he must go back to his brother's chateau. And then... It is enough, Teresa, said Emily. How long have you lived in this cottage? And how can I serve you? Will you remain here, or return and live with me? Nay, mademoiselle, said Teresa, do not be so shy to your poor old servant. I'm sure it is no disgrace to like such a good young gentleman. A deep sigh escaped from Emily. Ah, how he did love to talk of you. I loved him for that. Nay, for that matter, he liked to hear me talk, for he did not say much himself. But I soon found out what he came to the chateau about. Then he would go into the garden and down to the terrace and sit under that great tree there for the day together with one of your books in his hand. But he did not read much, I fancy, for one day I happened to go that way and I heard somebody talking. Who can be here, says I. I'm sure I let nobody into the garden but the chevalier. So I walked softly to see who it could be and behold, it was the chevalier himself talking to himself about you. And he repeated your name and sighed so, and said he had lost you forever, for that you would never return for him. I thought he was out in his reckoning there, but I said nothing and stole away. No more of this trifling, said Emily, awakening from her reverie. It displeases me. But when Monsieur Quenel left the chateau, I thought it would have broke the chevalier's heart. Teresa, said Emily seriously, you must name the chevalier no more. Not name him, mademoiselle, cried Teresa. What times are come up now? Why, I love the chevalier next to my old master and you, mademoiselle. Perhaps your love was not well bestowed then, replied Emily, trying to conceal her tears. But however that might be, we shall meet no more. Meet no more? Not well bestowed? exclaimed Teresa. What do I hear? No, mademoiselle, my love was well bestowed, for it was the Chevalier Valancourt who gave me this cottage, and has supported me in my old age, ever since Monsieur Quenel turned me from my master's house. The Chevalier Valancourt, said Emily, trembling extremely. Yes, mademoiselle, he himself, though he made me promise not to tell, but how could one help when one heard him ill-spoken of? Ah, dear young lady, you may well weep if you have behaved unkindly to him, for a more tender heart than his never young gentleman had. He found me out in my distress when you was too far off to help me, and Monsieur Quenel refused to do so and bade me go to service again. Alas, I was too old for that. The Chevalier found me and bought me this cottage and gave me money to furnish it and bade me seek out another poor woman to live with me. And he ordered his brother's steward to pay me every quarter, 
that which has supported me in comfort. Think then, mademoiselle, whether I have not reason to speak well of the chevalier, and there are others who could have afforded it better than he, and I'm afraid he has hurt himself by his generosity, for quarter day has gone by long since, and no money for me. But do not weep so, mademoiselle. You are not sorry, surely, to hear of the poor chevalier's goodness. Sorry, said Emily, and wept the more. But how long is it since you have seen him? Not this many a day, mademoiselle. When did you hear of him? inquired Emily with increased emotion. Alas, never since he went away so suddenly into Languedoc. And he was but just come from Paris then, or I should have seen him, I'm sure. Quarter day has gone by long since, and as I said, no money for me, and I begin to fear some harm has happened to him. And if I was not so far from Estuvière and so lame, I should have gone to inquire before this time, and I have nobody to send so far. Emily's anxiety as to the fate of Valancourt was now scarcely endurable, and since propriety would not suffer her to send to the chateau of his brother, she requested that Teresa would immediately hire some person to go to his steward from herself, and when he asked for the quarterage due to her, to make inquiries concerning Valancourt. But she first made Teresa promise never to mention her name in this affair, or ever with that of the Chevalier Valancourt, and her former faithfulness to Monsieur Saint-Aubert induced Emily to confide in her assurances. Teresa now joyfully undertook to procure a person for this errand, and then Emily, after giving her a sum of money to supply her with present comforts, returned with spirits heavily oppressed to her home, lamenting more than ever that an heart possessed of so much benevolence as Valancourt's should have been contaminated by the vices of the world, but affected by the delicate affection which his kindness to her old servant expressed for herself. End of Volume 4, Chapter 11「Recording by Anna Simon The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe Volume 4, Chapter 12, Part A Light thickens, and the crow makes wing to the rooky wood. Good things of day begin to droop and drowse, while night's black agents to their praise do rouse. Macbeth Meanwhile, Count de Villefort and Lady Blanche had passed a pleasant fortnight at the Chateau de Saint-Foy, with the Baron and Baroness, during which they made frequent excursions among the mountains, and were delighted with the romantic wildness of Pyrenean scenery. It was with regret that the Count bade adieu to his old friends, although with the hope of being soon united with them in one family, for it was settled that Monsieur Saint-Foy, who now attended them into Gascony, should receive the hand of the Lady Blanche upon their arrival at Chateau Le Blanc, as the road from the Baron's residence to La Vallée was over some of the wildest tract of the Pyrenees, and where a carriage wheel had never passed, the Count hired mules for himself and his family, as well as a couple of stout guides who were well armed, informed of all the passes of the mountains, and who boasted, too, that they were acquainted with every break and dingle in the way, could tell the names of all the highest points of this chain of Alps, knew every forest that spread along their narrow valleys, the shallowest part of every torrent they must cross, and the exact distance of every goat herd's and hunter's cabin they should have occasion to pass. 
which last article of learning required no very capacious memory, for even such simple inhabitants were but thinly scattered over these wilds. The Count left the Chateau de Saint-Foy early in the morning, with an intention of passing the night at a little inn upon the mountains, about halfway to La Vallée, of which his guides had informed him. And, though this was frequented chiefly by Spanish muleteers on their route into France, and of course would afford only sorry accommodation, the Count had no alternative, for it was the only place like an inn on the road. After a day of admiration and fatigue, the travellers found themselves, about sunset, in a woody valley, overlooked on every side by abrupt heights. They had proceeded for many leagues without seeing a human habitation, and had only heard, now and then, at a distance, the melancholy tinkling of a sheep-bell. But now they caught the notes of merry music, and presently saw, within a little green recess among the rocks, a group of mountaineers tripping through a dance. The Count, who could not look upon the happiness, any more than on the misery of others, with indifference, halted to enjoy this scene of simple pleasure. The group before him consisted of French and Spanish peasants, the inhabitants of a neighboring hamlet, some of whom were performing a sprightly dance, the women with castanets in their hands, to the sounds of a lute and a tambourine, till, from the brisk melody of France, the music softened into a slow movement, to which two female peasants danced the Spanish pavane. The Count, comparing this with the scenes of such gaiety as it witnessed at Paris, where false taste painted the features, and, while it vainly tried to supply the glow of nature, concealed the charms of animation, where affectation so often distorted the air, and vice perverted the manners, sighed to think that natural graces and innocent pleasures flourished in the wilds of solitude, while they drooped amidst the concourse of polished society. But the lengthening shadows reminded the travellers that they had no time to lose, and, leaving this joyous group, they pursued their way towards the little inn, which was to shelter them from the night. The rays of the setting sun now threw a yellow gleam upon the forests of pine and chestnut that swept down the lower region of the mountains and gave resplendent tints to the snowy points above. But soon even this light faded fast, and the scenery assumed a more tremendous appearance, invested with the obscurity of twilight. Where the torrent had been seen, it was now only heard. Where the wild cliffs had displayed every variety of form and attitude, a dark mass of mountains now alone appeared and the veil, which far, far below, had opened its dreadful chasm, the eye could no longer fathom. A melancholy gleam still lingered on the summits of the highest Alps, overlooking the deep repose of evening, and seeming to make the stillness of the hour more awful. Blanche viewed the scene in silence, and listened with enthusiasm to the murmur of the pines that extended in dark lines along the mountains, and to the faint voice of the izzard among the rocks that came at interval in the air. But her enthusiasm sunk into apprehension when, as the shadows deepened, she looked upon the doubtful precipice that bordered the road, as well as on the various fantastic forms of danger that glimmered through the obscurity beyond it, and she asked her father how far they were from the inn, and whether he did not consider the road to be dangerous at this late hour. The Count repeated the first question to the guides, who returned a doubtful answer, adding that, when it was darker, it would be safest to rest till the moon rose. It is scarcely safe to proceed now, said the Count, but the guides, assuring him that there was no danger, went on. Blanche, revived by this assurance, again indulged a pensive pleasure, as she watched the progress of twilight gradually spreading its tints over the woods and mountains, and stealing from the eye every minuter feature of the scene, till the grand outlines of nature alone remained. Then fell the silent dews, and every wild flower and aromatic plant that bloomed among the cliffs 
breathed forth its sweetness. Then, too, when the mountain bee had crept into its blossomed bed, and the hum of every little insect that had floated gaily in the sunbeam was hushed, the sound of many streams, not heard till now, murmured at a distance. The bats alone, of all the animals inhabiting this region, seemed awake, and, while they flitted across the silent path which Blanche was pursuing, she remembered the following lines which Emily had given her. To the bat. From haunt of men, from days obtrusive glare, thou shroudst thee in the ruin's ivied tower, or in some shadowy glen's romantic bower, where wizard forms their mystic charms prepare, where horror lurks and ever-boding care. But at the sweet and silent evening hour, when closed in sleep is every languid flower, thou lovest to sport upon the twilight air, mocking the eye that would thy course pursue. In many a wanton round, elastic, gay, thou flitst athwart the pensive wanderer's way, as his lone footsteps print the mountain dew. From Indian isles thou comest with summer's car, twilight thy love, thy guide her beaming star. To a warm imagination, the dubious forms that float half-veiled in darkness afford a higher delight than the most distinct scenery that the sun can show. While the fancy thus wanders over landscapes partly of its own creation, a sweet complacency steals upon the mind, and, refines it all to subtlest feeling, bids the tears of rapture roll. The distant note of a torrent, the weak trembling of the breeze among the woods, or the far-off sound of a human voice, now lost and heard again, are circumstances which wonderfully heighten the enthusiastic tone of the mind. The young Saint-Foy, who saw the presentations of a fervid fancy, and felt whatever enthusiasm could suggest, sometimes interrupted the silence which the rest of the party seemed by mutual consent to preserve, remarking and pointing out to Blanche the most striking effect of the hour upon the scenery, while Blanche, whose apprehensions were beguiled by the conversation of her lover, yielded to the taste so congenial to his and they conversed in a low, restrained voice, the effect of the pensive tranquillity which twilight and the scene inspired, rather than of any fear that they should be heard. But while the heart was thus soothed to tenderness, Saint-Foix gradually mingled with his admiration of the country, a mention of his affection, and he continued to speak and blanched to listen, till the mountains, the woods, and the magical illusions of twilight were remembered no more. The shadows of evening soon shifted to the gloom of night, which was somewhat anticipated by the vapours that, gathering fast round the mountains, rolled in dark wreaths along their sides, and the guides proposed to rest till the moon should rise, adding that they thought a storm was coming on. As they looked round for a spot that might afford some kind of shelter, an object was perceived obscurely through the dusk on a point of rock a little way down the mountain, which they imagined to be a hunter's or a shepherd's cabin and the party, with cautious steps, proceeded towards it. Their labour, however, was not rewarded, or their apprehensions soothed, for, on reaching the object of their search, they discovered a monumental cross, which marked the spot to have been polluted by murder. The darkness would not permit them to read the inscription, but the guides knew this to be a cross raised to the memory of a Count de Belliard, who had been murdered here by a horde of banditti, that had infested this part of the Pyrenees a few years before, and the uncommon size of the monument seemed to justify the supposition that it was erected for a person of some distinction. Blanche shuddered as she listened to some horrid particulars of the Count's fate, which one of the guides related in a low, restrained voice, as if the sound of his own voice frightened him. But, while they lingered at the cross, attending to his narrative, a flash of lightning glanced upon the rocks, 
thunder muttered at a distance, and the travellers, now alarmed, quitted this scene of solitary horror in search of shelter. Having regained their former track, the guides, as they passed on, endeavoured to interest the Count by various stories of robbery, and even of murder, which had been perpetrated in the very places they must unavoidably pass, with accounts of their own dauntless courage and wonderful escapes. The chief guide, or rather he, who was the most completely armed, drawing forth one of the four pistols that were tucked into his belt, swore that it had shot three robbers within the year. He then brandished a clasp-knife of enormous length, and was going to recount the wonderful execution it had done, when Saint-Foix, perceiving that Blanche was terrified, interrupted him. The Count, meanwhile, secretly laughing at the terrible histories and extravagant boastings of the man, resolved to humour him, and, telling Blanche in a whisper his design, began to recount some exploits of his own, which infinitely exceeded any related by the guide. To these surprising circumstances he so artfully gave the colouring of truth that the courage of the guides was visibly affected by them, who continued silent, long after the Count had ceased to speak. The loquacity of the chief hero thus laid asleep, the vigilance of his eyes and ears seemed more thoroughly awakened, for he listened, with much appearance of anxiety, to the deep thunder which murmured at intervals, and often paused, as the breeze that was now rising rushed among the pines. But when he made a sudden halt before a tuft of cork trees that projected over the road, and drew forth a pistol before he would venture to brave the banditti which might lurk behind it, the Count could no longer refrain from laughter. Having now, however, arrived at a level spot, somewhat sheltered from the air by overhanging cliffs and by a wood of larch that rose over the precipice on the left, and the guides being yet ignorant how far they were from the inn, the travellers determined to rest till the moon should rise or the storm disperse. Blanche, recalled to a sense of the present moment, looked on the surrounding gloom with terror, but giving her hand to Saint-Foix, she alighted, and the whole party entered a kind of cave, if such it could be called, which was only a shallow cavity formed by the curve of impending rocks. A light being struck, a fire was kindled, whose blaze afforded some degree of cheerfulness, and no small comfort, for, though the day had been hot, the night air of this mountainous region was chilling. The fire was partly necessary also to keep off the wolves with which those wilds were infested. Provisions being spread upon a projection of the rock, the Count and his family partook of a supper, which, in a scene less rude, would certainly have been thought less excellent. When the repast was finished, Saint-Foix, impatient for the moon, sauntered along the precipice to a point that fronted the east. But all was yet wrapped in gloom, and the silence of night was broken only by the murmuring of woods that waved far below, or by distant thunder, and, now and then, by the faint voices of the party had quitted. He viewed, with emotions of awful sublimity, the long volumes of sulfurous clouds that floated along the upper and middle regions of the air, and the lightnings that flashed from them, sometimes silently, and, at others, followed by sullen peals of thunder, which the mountains feebly prolonged, while the whole horizon and the abyss on which he stood were discovered in the momentary light. Upon the succeeding darkness, the fire which had been kindled in the cave threw a partial gleam, illumining some points of the opposite rocks and the summits of pine woods that hung beetling on the cliffs below, while their recesses seemed to frown in deeper shade. Saint-Foix stopped to observe the picture which the party in the cave presented, where the elegant form of Blanche was finely contrasted by the majestic figure of the Count, who was seated by her on a rude stone, 
and each was rendered more impressive by the grotesque habits and strong features of the guides and other attendants who were in the background of the piece. The effect of the light, too, was interesting. On the surrounding figures it threw a strong, though pale gleam, and glittered on their bright arms, while upon the foliage of a gigantic large that impended its shade over the cliff above appeared a red dusky tint, deepening almost imperceptibly into the blackness of night. While Saint-Foy contemplated the scene, the moon, broad and yellow, rose over the eastern summit, from among embattled clouds, and showed dimly the grandeur of the heavens, the mass of vapors that rolled halfway down the precipice beneath, and the doubtful mountains. What dreadful pleasure, there to stand sublime, like shipwrecked mariner on desert coast, and view the enormous waste of vapor tossed in billows lengthening to the horizon round. The Minstrel From this romantic reverie, he was awakened by the voices of the guides, repeating his name, which was reverbed from cliff to cliff, till a hundred tongues seemed to call him, when he soon quieted the fears of the Count and the Lady Blanche by returning to the cave. As the storm, however, seemed approaching, they did not quit their place of shelter, and the Count, seated between his daughter and Saint-Foy, endeavoured to divert the fears of the former, and conversed on subjects relating to the natural history of the scene among which they wandered. He spoke of the mineral and fossile substances found in the depths of these mountains, the veins of marble and granite with which they abounded, the strata of shells discovered near their summits, many thousand fathom above the level of the sea, and at a vast distance from its present shore, of the tremendous chasms and caverns of the rocks, the grotesque form of the mountains, and the various phenomena that seemed to stamp upon the world the history of the deluge. From the natural history, he descended to the mention of events and circumstances connected with the civil story of the Pyrenees, named some of the most remarkable fortresses which France and Spain had erected in the passes of these mountains, and gave a brief account of some celebrated sieges and encounters in early times, when ambition first frightened solitude from these her deep recesses, made her mountains, which before had echoed only to the torrent's roar, tremble with the clang of arms, and when man's first footsteps in her sacred haunts had left the print of blood. As Blanche sat, attentive to the narrative, that rendered the scenes doubly interesting, and resigned to solemn emotion, while she considered that she was on the very ground once polluted by these events, her reverie was suddenly interrupted by a sound that came in the wind. It was the distant bark of a watch-dog. The travellers listened with eager hope, and, as the wind blew stronger, fancied that the sound came from no great distance, and, the guides having little doubt that it proceeded from the inn they were in search of, the Count determined to pursue his way. The moon now afforded a stronger, though still an uncertain light, as she moved among broken clouds, and the travellers, led by the sound, recommenced their journey along the brow of the precipice, preceded by a single torch that now contended with the moonlight. For the guides, believing they should reach the inn soon after sunset, had neglected to provide more. In silent caution they followed the sound, which was heard but at intervals, and which, after some time, entirely ceased. The guides endeavoured, however, to point their course to the quarter whence it had issued, but the deep roaring of a torrent soon seized their attention, and presently they came to a tremendous chasm of the mountain, which seemed to forbid all further progress. Blanche alighted from her mule, as did the Count at Saint-Foy, while the guides traversed the edge in search of a bridge, which, however rude, might convey them to the opposite side, 
and they at length confessed what the Count had begun to suspect, that they had been, for some time, doubtful of their way, and were now certain only that they had lost it. End of Volume 4, Chapter 12, Part A Recording by Anna Simon The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe Volume 4, Chapter 12, Part B At a little distance was discovered a rude and dangerous passage formed by an enormous pine, which, thrown across the chasm, united the opposite precipices, and which had been felled probably by the hunter to facilitate his chase of the izzard or the wolf. The whole party, the guides excepted, shuddered at the prospect of crossing this alpine bridge, whose sides afforded no kind of defence, and from which to fall was to die. The guides, however, prepared to lead over the mules, while Blanche stood trembling on the brink, and listening to the roar of the waters, which was seen descending from rocks above, overhung with lofty pines, and thence precipitating themselves into the deep abyss, where their white surges gleamed faintly in the moonlight. The poor animals proceeded over this perilous bridge with instinctive caution, neither frightened by the noise of the cataract, or deceived by the gloom which the impending foliage threw athwart their way. It was now that the solitary torch, which had been hitherto of little service, was found to be an inestimable treasure, and Blanche, terrified, shrinking, but endeavouring to recollect all her firmness and presence of mind, preceded by her lover and supported by her father, followed the red gleam of the torch in safety to the opposite cliff. As they went on, the heights contracted and formed a narrow pass, at the bottom of which the torrent they had just crossed was heard to thunder. But they were again cheered by the bark of a dog, keeping watch, perhaps, over the flocks of the mountains, to protect them from the nightly descent of the wolves. The sound was much nearer than before, and, while they rejoiced in the hope of soon reaching a place of repose, a light was seen to glimmer at a distance. It appeared at a height considerably above the level of their path, and was lost and seen again, as if the waving branches of trees sometimes excluded and then admitted its rays. The guides hallooed with all their strength, but the sound of no human voice was heard in return, and, at length, as a more effectual means of making themselves known, they fired a pistol. But... While they listened in anxious expectation, the noise of the explosion was alone heard, echoing among the rocks, and it gradually sunk into silence, which no friendly hint of man disturbed. The light, however, that had been seen before, now became plainer, and, soon after, voices were heard indistinctly on the wind. But, upon the guides repeating the call, the voices suddenly ceased, and the light disappeared. The Lady Blanche was now almost sinking beneath the pressure of anxiety, fatigue and apprehension, and the united efforts of the Count and Saint-Foy could scarcely support her spirits. As they continued to advance, an object was perceived on a point of rock above, which, the strong rays of the moon then falling on it, appeared to be a watchtower. The Count, from its situation and some other circumstances, had little doubt that it was such, and believing that the light had proceeded from thence, he endeavoured to reanimate his daughter's spirits by the near prospect of shelter and repose, which, however rude the accommodation, a ruined watchtower might afford. Numerous watchtowers have been erected among the Pyrenees, said the Count, anxious only to call Blanche's attention from the subject of affairs, and the method by which they give intelligence of the approach of the enemy is, you know, by fires, kindled on the summits of these edifices. Signals have thus, sometimes, been communicated from post to post along a frontier line of several hundred miles in length. Then, as occasion may require, the lurking armies emerge from their fortresses in the forests and march forth 
to defend, perhaps, the entrance of some grand pass, where, planting themselves on the heights, they assail their astonished enemies, who wind along the glen below, with fragments of the shattered cliff, and pour death and defeat upon them. The ancient forts and watchtowers overlooking the grand passes of the Pyrenees are carefully preserved, but some of those in inferior stations have been suffered to fall into decay, and are now frequently converted into the more peaceful habitation of the hunter, or the shepherd, who, after a day of toil, retires hither, and, with his faithful dogs, forgets, near a cheerful blaze, the labor of the chase, or the anxiety of collecting his wandering flocks, while he is sheltered from the nightly storm. But are they always thus peacefully inhabited? said the Lady Blanche. No, replied the Count. They are sometimes the asylum of French and Spanish smugglers, who cross the mountains with contraband goods from their respective countries, and the latter are particularly numerous, against whom strong parties of the King's troops are sometimes sent. But the desperate resolution of these adventurers, who, knowing that, if they are taken, they must expiate the breach of the law by the most cruel death, travel in large parties, well armed, often dance the courage of the soldiers. The smugglers, who seek only safety, never engage when they can possibly avoid it. The military, also, who know that in these encounters danger is certain, and glory almost unattainable, are equally reluctant to fight. An engagement, therefore, very seldom happens, but, when it does, it never concludes till after the most desperate and bloody conflict. "'You are inattentive, Blanche,' added the Count. "'I have wearied you with a dull subject.' But see, yonder, in the moonlight, is the edifice we have been in search of, and we are fortunate to be so near it before the storm bursts. Blanche, looking up, perceived that they were at the foot of the cliff on whose summit the building stood, but no light now issued from it. The barking of the dog, too, had, for some time, ceased, and the guides began to doubt whether this was really the object of their search. From the distance at which they surveyed it, shown imperfectly by a cloudy moon, it appeared to be of more extent than a single watchtower, for the difficulty was how to ascend the height, whose abrupt declivities seemed to afford no kind of pathway. While the guides carried forward the torch to examine the cliff, the Count, remaining with Blanche and saint at its foot, under the shadow of the woods, endeavoured again to beguile the time by conversation, but again anxiety abstracted the mind of Blanche, and he then consulted, apart with saint -Foy, whether it would be advisable, should a path be found, to venture to an edifice which might possibly harbour banditti. They considered that their own party was not small, and that several of them were well armed, and, after enumerating the dangers to be incurred by passing the night in the open wild, exposed perhaps to the effects of a thunderstorm, there remained not a doubt that they ought to endeavour to obtain admittance to the edifice above, at any hazard respecting the inhabitants it might harbour. But the darkness and the dead silence that surrounded it appear to contradict the probability of its being inhabited at all. A shout from the guides aroused their attention, after which, in a few minutes, one of the Count's servants returned with intelligence that a path was found, and they immediately hastened to join the guides, when they all ascended a little winding way cut in the rock among thickets of dwarf wood, and, after much toil and some danger, reached the summit, where several ruined towers, surrounded by a massy wall, rose to their view partially illumined by the moonlight. The space around the building was silent, and apparently forsaken, but the Count was cautious. "'Step softly,' said he, in a low voice, while we reconnoitre the edifice. Having proceeded silently along for some paces, 
They stopped at a gate, whose portals were terrible even in ruins, and, after a moment's hesitation, passed on to the court of entrance, but paused again at the head of a terrace, which, branching from it, ran along the brow of a precipice. Over this rose the main body of the edifice, which was now seen to be not a watchtower, but one of those ancient fortresses that, from age and neglect, had fallen to decay. Many parts of it, however, appeared to be still entire. It was built of grey stone, in the heavy Saxon Gothic style, with enormous round towers, buttresses of proportionable strength, and the arch of the large gate, which seemed to open into the hall of the fabric, was round, as was that of a window above. The air of solemnity, which must so strongly have characterized the pile even in the days of its early strength, was now considerably heightened by its shattered battlements and half-demolished walls, and by the huge masses of ruin scattered in its wide area, now silent and grass-grown. In this court of entrance stood the gigantic remains of an oak that seemed to have flourished and decayed with the building, which it still appeared frowningly to protect by the few remaining branches, leafless and moss-grown, that crowned its trunk, and whose wide extent told how enormous the tree had been in a former age. This fortress was evidently once of great strength, and, from its situation on a point of rock, impending over a deep glen, had been of great power to annoy as well as to resist. The Count, therefore, as he stood surveying it, was somewhat surprised that it had been suffered, ancient as it was, to sink into ruins, and its present lonely and deserted air excited in his breast emotions of melancholy awe. While he indulged for a moment these emotions, he thought he heard a sound of remote voices steal upon the stillness, from within the building, the front of which he again surveyed with scrutinizing eyes, but yet no light was visible. He now determined to walk round the fort, to that remote part of it whence he thought the voices had arisen, that he might examine whether any light could be discerned there, before he ventured to knock at the gate. For this purpose he entered upon the terrace, where the remains of cannon were yet apparent in the thick walls, but he had not proceeded many paces, when his steps were suddenly arrested by the loud barking of a dog within, and which he fancied to be the same whose voice had been the means of bringing the travellers thither. It now appeared certain that the place was inhabited, and the Count returned to consult again with St. Foy, whether he should try to obtain admittance, for its wild aspect had somewhat shaken his former resolution. But, after a second consultation, he submitted to the considerations which before determined him, and which were strengthened by the discovery of the dog that guarded the fort, as well as by the stillness that pervaded it. He therefore ordered one of his servants to knock at the gate, who was advancing to obey him, when a light appeared through the loophole of one of the towers, and the Count called loudly, but, receiving no answer, he went up to the gate himself, and struck upon it with an iron-pointed pole, which had assisted him to climb the steep. When the echoes had ceased that this blow had awakened, the renewed barking, and there were now more than one dog, was the only sound that was heard. The Count stepped back a few paces, to observe whether the light was in the tower, and, perceiving that it was gone, he returned to the portal, and had lifted the pole to strike again, when again he fancied he heard the murmur of voices within, and paused to listen. He was confirmed in the supposition, but they were too remote to be heard otherwise than in a murmur and the Count now let the pole fall heavily upon the gate, when almost immediately a profound silence followed. It was apparent that the people within had heard the sound, and their caution in admitting strangers gave him a favourable opinion of them. 
They are either hunters or shepherds, said he, who, like ourselves, have probably sought shelter from the night within these walls, and are fearful of admitting strangers, lest they should prove robbers. I will endeavour to remove their fears. So saying, he called aloud, We are friends who ask shelter from the night. In a few moments, steps were heard within, which approached, and a voice then inquired, Who calls? Friends, repeated the Count. Open the gates, and you shall know more. Strong bolts were now heard to be undrawn, and a man, armed with a hunting spear, appeared. What is it you want at this hour? said he. The Count beckoned his attendants, and then answered that he wished to inquire the way to the nearest cabin. Are you so little acquainted with these mountains? said the man, as not to know that there is none within several leagues. I cannot show you the way. You must seek it. There is a moon. Saying this, he was closing the gate, and the Count was turning away, half disappointed and half afraid, when another voice was heard from above, and, on looking up, he saw a light and a man's face at the grate of the portal. "'Stay, friend. You have lost your way?' said the voice. "'You are hunters, I suppose, like ourselves. I will be with you presently.' The voice ceased, and the light disappeared. Blanche had been alarmed by the appearance of the man who had opened the gate, and she now entreated her father to quit the place, but the Count had observed the hunter's spear, which he carried, and the words from the tower encouraged him to await the event. The gate was soon opened, and several men in hunter's habits, who had heard above what had passed below, appeared, and, having listened some time to the Count, told him he was welcome to rest there for the night. They then pressed him, with much courtesy, to enter, and to partake of such fare as they were about to sit down to. The Count, who had observed them attentively while they spoke, was cautious, and somewhat suspicious. But he was also wary, fearful of the approaching storm, and of encountering alpine heights in the obscurity of night. Being likewise somewhat confident in the strength and number of his attendants, he, after some further consideration, determined to accept the invitation. With this resolution, he called his servants, who, advancing round the tower, behind which some of them had silently listened to this conference, followed their lord, the Lady Blanche and saint Foix, into the fortress. The strangers led them on to a large and rude hall, partially seen by a fire that blazed at its extremity, round which four men in the hunter's dress were seated, and on the hearth were several dogs stretched in sleep. In the middle of the hall stood a large table, and over the fire some part of an animal was boiling. As the Count approached, the men arose, and the dogs, half raising themselves, looked fiercely at the strangers, but, on hearing their master's voices, kept their postures on the hearth. Blanche looked round this gloomy and spacious hall, then at the men, and to her father, who, smiling cheerfully at her, addressed himself to the hunters. "'This is a hospitable hearth,' said he. "'The blaze of a fire is reviving after having wandered so long in these dreary wilds. "'Your dogs are tired.' "'What success have you had?' "'Such as we usually have,' replied one of the men, who had been seated in the hall. "'We kill our game with tolerable certainty.' "'These are fellow hunters,' said one of the men who had brought the Count hither, "'that have lost their way, and I have told them there is room enough in the fort for us all.' "'Very true, very true,' replied his companion. "'What luck have you had in the chase, brothers? "'We have killed two izzards, and that, you will say, is pretty well.' "'You mistake, friend,' said the Count. "'We are not hunters, but travellers. "'But if you will admit us to hunter's fare, "'we shall be well contented, and will repay your kindness.' "'Sit down, then, brother,' said one of the men. "'Jacques, lay more fuel on the fire. 
The kit will soon be ready. Bring a seat for the lady too. Mademoiselle, will you taste our brandy? It is true Barcelona, and as bright as ever flowed from a keg. Blanche timidly smiled and was going to refuse when her father prevented her by taking, with a good-humoured air, the glass offered to his daughter. And Monsieur Saint-Foy, who was seated next to her, pressed her hand and gave her an encouraging look. But her attention was engaged by a man who sat silently by the fire, observing Saint-Foy with a steady and earnest eye. "'You lead a jolly life here,' said the Count. "'The life of a hunter is a pleasant and a healthy one, and the repose is sweet, which succeeds to your labour.' "'Yes,' replied one of his hosts. "'Our life is pleasant enough. "'We live here only during the summer and autumnal months. "'In winter the place is dreary, "'and the swollen torrents that descend from the heights "'put a stop to the chase.' "'Tis a life of liberty and enjoyment,' said the Count. "'I should like to pass a month in your way very well.' "'We find employment for our guns, too,' said the man who stood behind the Count. "'Here are plenty of birds of delicious flavour that feed upon the wild thyme and herbs that grow in the valleys. Now I think of it, there is a brace of birds hung up in the stone gallery. Go fetch them, Jacques. We'll have them dressed. The Count now made inquiry concerning the method of pursuing the chase among the rocks and precipices of these romantic regions, and was listening to a curious detail when a horn was sounded at the gate. Blanche looked timidly at her father, who continued to converse on the subject of the chase, but whose countenance was somewhat expressive of anxiety, and who often turned his eyes towards that part of the hall nearest the gate. The horn sounded again, and a loud halloo succeeded. "'These are some of our companions, returned from their day's labour,' said a man, going lazily from his seat towards the gate. And in a few minutes two men appeared, each with a gun over his shoulder and pistols in his belt. "'What cheer, my lads, what cheer!' said they as they approached. "'What luck!' returned their companions. "'Have you brought home your supper? You shall have none else.' "'Ah, who the devil have you brought home?' said they in bad Spanish, on perceiving the Count's party. "'Are they from France or Spain? Where did you meet with them?' "'They met with us, and a merry meeting too,' replied his companion, aloud in good French. This chevalier and his party had lost their way and asked a night's lodging in the fort. The others made no reply, but threw down a kind of knapsack, and drew forth several brays of birds. The bag sounded heavily as it fell to the ground, and the glitter of some bright metal within glanced on the eye of the Count, who now surveyed, with a more inquiring look, the man that held the knapsack. He was a tall, robust figure, of a hard countenance, and had short black hair curling in his neck. Instead of the hunter's dress, he wore a faded military uniform. Sandals were laced on his broad legs, and a kind of short trousers hung from his waist. On his head he wore a leathern cap, somewhat resembling in shape an ancient Roman helmet, but the brows that scowled beneath it would have characterized those of the barbarians who conquered Rome rather than those of a Roman soldier. The Count at length turned away his eyes, and remained silent and thoughtful, till, again raising them, he perceived a figure standing in an obscure part of the hall, fixed in attentive gaze on Saint-Foy, who was conversing with Blanche, and did not observe this. But the Count, soon after, saw the same man looking over the shoulder of the soldier as attentively at himself. He withdrew his eye when that of the Count met it, who felt mistrust gathering fast upon his mind, but feared to betray it in his countenance, and, forcing his features to assume a smile, addressed Blanche on some indifferent subject. When he again looked round, he perceived that the soldier and his companion were gone. 
End of Volume 4, Chapter 12, Part B Recording by Anna Simon The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe Volume 4, Chapter 12, Part C The man who was called Jacques now returned from the stone gallery. A fire is lighted there, said he, and the birds are dressing. The table too is spread there, for that place is warmer than this. His companions approved of the removal, and invited their guests to follow to the gallery, of whom Blanche appeared distressed, and remained seated, and Saint-Foy looked at the Count, who said he preferred the comfortable blaze of the fire he was then near. The hunters, however, commanded the warmth of the other apartment, and pressed his removal with such seeming courtesy, that the Count, half doubting and half fearful of betraying his doubts, consented to go. The long and ruinous passages through which they went somewhat daunted him, but the thunder which now burst in loud peals above made it dangerous to quit this place of shelter, and he forbore to provoke his conductors by showing that he distrusted them. The hunters led the way with a lamp. The Count of Savoie, who wished to please their hosts by some instances of familiarity, carried each a seat, and Blanche followed with faltering steps. As she passed on, part of her dress caught on a nail in the wall, and, while she stopped somewhat too scrupulously to disengage it, the Count, who was talking to Saint-Foy, and neither of whom observed the circumstance, followed their conductor round an abrupt angle of the passage, and Blanche was left behind in darkness. The thunder prevented them from hearing her call, but, having disengaged her dress, she quickly followed, as she thought, the way they had taken. A light that glimmered at a distance confirmed this belief, and she proceeded towards an open door, whence it issued, conjecturing the room beyond to be the stone gallery the man had spoken of. Hearing voices as she advanced, she paused within a few paces of the chamber, that she might be certain whether she was right, and from thence, by the light of a lamp that hung from the ceiling, observed four men, seated round a table, over which they leant in apparent consultation. In one of them she distinguished the features of him whom she had observed gazing at Saint-Foix with such deep attention, and who was now speaking in an earnest, though restrained voice, till, one of his companions seeming to oppose him, they spoke together in a loud and harsher tone. Blanche, alarmed by perceiving that neither her father or Saint-Foix were there, and terrified at the fierce countenances and menace of these men, was turning hastily from the chamber to pursue her search of the gallery, when she heard one of the men say, "'Let all dispute end here. Who talks of danger? Follow my advice, and there will be none. Secure them, and the rest are an easy prey.' Blanche, struck with these words, paused a moment to hear more. "'There's nothing to be got by the rest.' said one of his companions. I am never for blood when I can help it. Dispatch the two others, and our business is done. The rest may go. May they so, exclaimed the first ruffian, with a tremendous oath. What, to tell how we have disposed of their masters, and to send the king's troops to drag us to the wheel? He was always a choice adviser. I warrant we have not yet forgot St. Thomas's Eve last year. Blanche's heart now sunk with horror. Her first impulse was to retreat from the door, but, when she would have gone, her trembling frame refused to support her, and, having tottered a few paces to a more obscure part of the passage, she was compelled to listen to the dreadful counsels of those who, she was no longer suffered to doubt, were banditti. In the next moment she heard the following words, "'Why, you would not murder the whole gang?' "'I warrant our lives are as good as theirs,' replied his comrade. "'If we don't kill them, they will hang us.' Better they should die than we be hanged. Better, better, cried his comrades. To commit murder is a hopeful way of escaping the gallows, said the first ruffian. 
Many an honest fellow has run his head into the noose that way, though. There was a pause of some moments, during which they appeared to be considering. Confound those fellows! exclaimed one of the robbers impatiently. They ought to have been here by this time. They will come back presently with the old story and no booty. If they were here, our business would be plain and easy. I see we shall not be able to do the business tonight, for our numbers are not equal to the enemy, and in the morning they will be for marching off. And how can we detain them without force? I've been thinking of a scheme that will do, said one of his comrades. If we can dispatch the two chevaliers silently, it will be easy to master the rest. That's a plausible scheme, in good faith, said another, with a smile of scorn. If I can eat my way through the prison wall, I shall be at liberty. How can we dispatch them silently? By poison, replied his companions. Well said, that will do, said the second ruffian. That will give a lingering death, too, and satisfy my revenge. These barons shall take care how they again tempt our vengeance. I knew the sun the moment I saw him, said the man, whom Blanche had observed gazing on Saint-Foy, though he does not know me. The father I had almost forgotten. Well, you may say what you will, said the third ruffian, but I don't believe he is the baron, and I am as likely to know as any of you, for I was one of them that attacked him with our brave lads that suffered. And was not I another, said the first ruffian? I tell you, he is the baron. But what does it signify whether he is or not? Shall we let all this booty go out of our hands? It's not often we have such luck as this. While we run the chance of the wheel for smuggling a few pounds of tobacco, to cheat the king's manufactory, and of breaking our necks down the precipices in the chase of our food, and, now and then, rob a brother smuggler or a straggling pilgrim of what scarcely repays the powder we fire at them, shall we let such a prize as this go? Why, they have enough about them to keep us for... I am not for that, I am not for that, replied the third robber. Let us make the most of them. Only, if this is the baron, I should like to have a flash the more at him, for the sake of our brave comrades that he brought to the gallows. Aye, aye, flash as much as you will, rejoined the first man. But I tell you, the baron is a taller man. Confound your quibbling, said the second ruffian. Shall we let them go or not? If we stay here much longer, they will take the hint and march off without our leave. Let them be who they will, they are rich, or why all those servants? Did you see the ring he you called a baron had on his finger? It was a diamond, but he has not got it on now. He saw me looking at it, I warrant, and took it off. Aye, and then there is the picture. Did you see that? She has not taken that off, observed the first ruffian. It hangs at her neck. If it had not sparkled so, I should not have found it out, for it was almost hid by her dress. Those are diamonds, too, and a rare many of them there must be, to go around such a large picture. But how are we to manage this business? said the second ruffian. Let us talk of that. There is no fear of there being booty enough, but how are we to secure it? Aye, aye, said his comrades. Let us talk of that, and remember no time is to be lost. I am still for poison, observed the third, but consider their number. Why, there are nine or ten of them, and armed too. When I saw so many at the gate, I was not for letting them in, you know, nor you either. I thought they might be some of our enemies, replied the second. I did not so much mind numbers. But you must mind them now, rejoined his comrade, or it will be worse for you. We are not more than six, and how can we master ten by open force? I tell you, we must give some of them a dose, and the rest may then be managed. I'll tell you a better way, rejoined the other impatiently. Draw closer. 
Blanche, who had listened to this conversation in an agony which it would be impossible to describe, could no longer distinguish what was said, for the ruffians now spoke in lowered voices. But the hope that she might save her friends from the plot if she could find her way quickly to them, suddenly reanimated her spirits and lent her strength enough to turn her steps in search of the gallery. Terror, however, and darkness conspired against her, and, having moved a few yards, the feeble light that issued from the chamber no longer even contended with the gloom, and, her foot stumbling over a step that crossed the passage, she fell to the ground. The noise startled the banditti, who became suddenly silent, and then all rushed to the passage to examine whether any person was there who might have overheard their counsels. Blanche saw them approaching and perceived their fierce and eager looks, but before she could raise herself, they discovered and seized her, and, as they dragged her towards the chamber they had quitted, her screams drew from them horrible threatenings. Having reached the room, they began to consult what they should do with her. "'Let us first know what she had heard,' said the chief robber. "'How long have you been in the passage, lady, and what brought you there?' "'Let us first secure that picture,' said one of his comrades, approaching the trembling Blanche. "'Fair lady, by your leave that picture is mine. Come, surrender it, or I shall seize it.' Blanche, entreating their mercy, immediately gave up the miniature, while another of the ruffians fiercely interrogated her, concerning what she had overheard of their conversation, when, her confusion and terror too plainly telling what her tongue feared to confess, the ruffians looked expressively upon one another, and two of them withdrew to a remote part of the room, as if to consult further. "'These are diamonds by St. Peter,' exclaimed the fellow, who had been examining the miniature, "'and here is a very pretty picture too, Faith.' as handsome a young chevalier as you would wish to see by a summer's sun. Lady, this is your spouse, I warrant, for it is the spark that was in your company just now. Blanche, sinking with terror, conjured him to have pity on her, and, delivering him her purse, promised to say nothing of what had passed if he would suffer her to return to her friends. He smiled ironically, and was going to reply when his attention was called off by a distant noise, and, while he listened, he grasped the arm of Blanche more firmly, as if he feared she would escape from him, and she again shrieked for help. The approaching sounds called the ruffians from the other part of the chamber. "'We are betrayed,' said they. "'But let us listen a moment. Perhaps it is only our comrades come in from the mountains, and if so, our work is sure. Listen!' A distant discharge of shot confirmed this supposition for a moment, but, in the next, the former sounds drawing near, the clashing of swords, mingled with the voices of loud contention and with heavy groans, were distinguished in the avenue leading to the chamber. While the ruffians prepared their arms, they heard themselves called by some of their comrades afar off, and then a shrill horn was sounded without the fortress, a signal, it appeared, they too well understood, for three of them, leaving the Lady Blanche to the care of the fourth, instantly rushed from the chamber. While Blanche, trembling and nearly fainting, was supplicating for release, she heard amid the tumult that approached the voice of saint Foy, and she had scarcely renewed her shriek when the door of the room was thrown open, and he appeared, much disfigured with blood, and pursued by several ruffians. Blanche neither saw or heard any more. Her head swam, her sight failed, and she became senseless in the arms of the robber who had detained her. When she recovered, she perceived by the gloomy light that trembled round her, that she was in the same chamber, but neither the Count, Saint-Foy, or any other person appeared, and she continued, for some time, entirely still, and nearly in a state of stupefaction. But, the dreadful images of the past returning, she endeavoured to raise herself, that she might seek her friends, when a sudden groan, at a little distance, reminded her of Saint-Foy, 
and of the condition in which she had seen him enter this room. Then, starting from the floor by a sudden effort of horror, she advanced to the place whence the sound had proceeded, where a body was lying stretched upon the pavement, and where, by the glimmering light of a lamp, she discovered the pale and disfigured countenance of saint Foy. Her horrors at that moment may be easily imagined. He was speechless. His eyes were half-closed, and, on the hand which he grasped in the agony of despair, cold damps had settled. While she vainly repeated his name and called for assistance, steps approached, and a person entered the chamber, who, she soon perceived, was not the Count, her father. But what was her astonishment when, supplicating him to give his assistance to Saint-Foy, she discovered Ludovico. He scarcely paused to recognize her, but immediately bound up the wounds of the Chevalier, and, perceiving that he had fainted probably from loss of blood, ran for water. But he had been absent only a few moments when Blanche heard other steps approaching, and, while she was almost frantic with apprehension of the ruffians, the light of a torch flashed upon the walls, and then Count de Villefort appeared, with an affrighted countenance, and breathless with impatience, calling upon his daughter. At the sound of his voice she rose and ran to his arms, while he, letting fall the bloody sword he held, pressed her to his bosom in a transport of gratitude and joy, and then hastily inquired for Saint-Foy, who now gave some signs of life. Ludovico, soon after, returning with water and brandy, the former was applied to his lips, and the latter to his temples and hands, and Blanche at length saw him unclose his eyes, and then heard him inquire for her. But the joy she felt on this occasion was interrupted by new alarms, when Ludovico said it would be necessary to remove Monsieur Saint-Foy immediately, and added, The banditti that are out, my lord, were expected home an hour ago, and they will certainly find us if we delay. That shrill horn, they know, is never sounded by their comrades but on most desperate occasions, and it echoes among the mountains for many leagues round. I have known them brought home by its sound, even from the Pierre de Melicante. Is anybody standing watch at the great gate, my lord? Nobody, replied the Count. The rest of my people are now scattered about. I scarcely know where. Go, Ludovico, collect them together, and look out yourself, and listen if you hear the feet of mules. Ludovico then hurried away, and the Count consulted as to the means of removing Saint-Foy, who could not have borne the motion of a mule, even if his strength would have supported him in the saddle. While the Count was telling that the banditti, whom they had found in the fort, were secured in the dungeon, Blanche observed that he was himself wounded, and that his left arm was entirely useless. But he smiled at her anxiety, assuring her the wound was trifling. The Count's servants, except two who kept watch at the gate, now appeared, and, soon after, Ludovico. "'I think I hear mules coming along the glen, my lord,' said he. "'But the roaring of the torrent below will not let me be certain. However, I have brought what will serve the Chevalier,' he added, showing a bare skin." fastened to a couple of long poles, which had been adapted for the purpose of bringing home such of the banditti as happened to be wounded in their encounters. Ludovico spread it on the ground, and, placing the skins of several goats upon it, made a kind of bed, into which the chevalier, who was however now much revived, was gently lifted, and, the poles being raised upon the shoulders of the guides, whose footing among these steeps could best be depended upon, he was borne along with an easy motion. Some of the Count's servants were also wounded, but not materially and, their wounds being bound up, they now followed to the great gate. As they passed along the hall, a loud tumult was heard at some distance, and Blanche was terrified. "'It is only those villains in the dungeon, my lady,' said Ludovico. "'They seem to be bursting it open,' said the Count. "'No, my lord,' replied Ludovico. "'It has an iron door. 
We have nothing to fear from them. But let me go first and look out from the rampart. They quickly followed him and found their mules browsing before the gates, where the party listened anxiously but heard no sound except that of the torrent below and of the early breeze sighing among the branches of the old oak that grew in the court, and they were now glad to perceive the first tints of dawn over the mountain tops. When they had mounted their mules, Ludovico, undertaking to be their guide, led them by an easier path than that by which they had formerly ascended into the glen. "'We must avoid that valley to the east, my lord,' said he, "'or we may meet the banditti. "'They went out that way in the morning.' "'The travellers, soon after, quitted this glen, "'and found themselves in a narrow valley "'that stretched towards the northwest. "'The morning light upon the mountains now strengthened fast, "'and gradually discovered the green hillocks "'that skirted the winding feet of the cliffs, "'tufted with cork-tree and evergreen oak. "'The thunder-clouds being dispersed "'had left the sky perfectly serene.' and Blanche was revived by the fresh breeze and by the view of verdure which the late rain had brightened. Soon after, the sun arose, when the dripping rocks with the shrubs that fringed their summits and many a turfy slope below sparkled in his rays. A wreath of mist was seen, floating along the extremity of the valley, but the gale bore it before the travellers, and the sunbeams gradually drew it up towards the summit of the mountains. They had proceeded about a league when, Saint-Foix having complained of extreme faintness, they stopped to give him refreshment, and that the man who bore him might rest. Ludovico had brought from the fort some flasks of rich Spanish wine, which now proved a reviving cordial not only to Saint-Foix, but to the whole party, though to him it gave only temporary relief, for it fed the fever that burned in his veins, and he could neither disguise in his countenance the anguish he suffered, or suppress the wish that he was arrived at the inn where they had designed to pass the preceding night. While they thus reposed themselves under the shade of the dark green pines, the Count desired Ludovico to explain shortly by what means he had disappeared from the north apartment, how he came into the hands of the banditti, and how he had contributed so essentially to serve him and his family, for to him he justly attributed their present deliverance. Ludovico was going to obey him, when suddenly they heard the echo of a pistol shot from the way they had passed, and they rose in alarm, hastily to pursue their route. End of Volume 4, Chapter 12, Part C Recording by Anna Simon The Mysteries of Odolfo by Anne Radcliffe Volume 4, Chapter 13 Ah, why did fate his steps decoy In stormy paths to roam, Remote from all congenial joy? Beatty. Emily, meanwhile, was still suffering anxiety as to the fate of Valancourt, but Theresa, having at length found a person whom she could entrust on her errand to the steward, informed her that the messenger would return on the following day, and Emily promised to be at the cottage, Theresa being too lame to attend her. In the evening, therefore, Emily set out alone for the cottage, with a melancholy foreboding concerning Valancourt while perhaps the gloom of the hour might contribute to depress her spirits. It was a grey autumnal evening towards the close of the season. Heavy mists partially obscured the mountains, and a chilling breeze that sighed among the beechwoods strewed her path with some of their last yellow leaves. These, circling in the blast and foretelling the death of the year, gave an image of desolation to her mind, and in her fancy seemed to announce the death of Valancourt. Of this she had, indeed, more than once so strong a presentiment that she was on the point of returning home, 
feeling herself unequal to an encounter with the certainty she anticipated. But, contending with her emotions, she so far commanded them as to be able to proceed. While she walked mournfully on, gazing on the long volumes of vapor that poured upon the sky, and watching the swallows tossed along the wind, now disappearing among tempestuous clouds, and then emerging, for a moment, in circles upon the calmer air, the afflictions and vicissitudes of her late life seemed portrayed in these fleeting images. Thus had she been tossed upon the stormy sea of misfortune for the last year, with but short intervals of peace, if peace that could be called which was only a delay of evils. And now, when she had escaped from so many dangers, was become independent of the will of those who had oppressed her, and found herself mistress of a large fortune. Now, when she might reasonably have expected happiness, she perceived that she was as distant from it as ever. She would have accused herself of weakness and ingratitude in thus suffering a sense of the various blessings she possessed to be overcome by that of a single misfortune, had this misfortune affected herself alone. But when she had wept for Valancourt even as living, tears of compassion had mingled with those of regret, and while she lamented a human being degraded to vice, and consequently to misery, reason and humanity claimed these tears, and fortitude had not yet taught her to separate them from those of love. In the present moments, however, it was not the certainty of his guilt, but the apprehension of his death, of a death also to which she herself, however innocently, appeared to have been in some degree instrumental, that oppressed her. This fear increased as the means of certainty concerning it approached, and, when she came within view of Theresa's cottage, she was so much disordered, and her resolution failed her so entirely, that, unable to proceed, she rested on a bank beside her path, where, as she sat, the wind that groaned sullenly among the lofty branches above, seemed to her melancholy imagination to bear the sounds of distant lamentation, and, in the pauses of the gust, she still fancied she heard the feeble and far-off notes of distress. Attention convinced her that this was no more than fancy, but the increasing gloom which seemed the sudden close of day soon warned her to depart, and, with faltering steps, she again moved toward the cottage. Through the casement appeared the cheerful blaze of a wood-fire, and Theresa, who had observed Emily approaching, was already at the door to receive her. "'It's a cold evening, madam,' said she. "'Storms are coming on, and I thought you would like a fire.' Do take this chair by the hearth. Emily, thanking her for this consideration, sat down, and then, looking in her face, on which the wood fire threw a gleam, she was struck with its expression, and, unable to speak, sunk back in her chair with a countenance so full of woe that Theresa instantly comprehended the occasion of it, but she remained silent. Ah, said Emily at length. It is unnecessary for me to ask the result of your inquiry. Your silence and that look sufficiently explain it. He is dead. Alas, my dear young lady, replied Theresa, while tears filled her eyes. This world is made up of trouble. The rich have their share as well as the poor. But we must all endeavor to bear what heaven pleases. He is dead, then, interrupted Emily. Valancourt is dead? Oh, well a day, I fear he is, replied Theresa. You fear, said Emily, do you only fear? Alas, yes, madam, I fear he is. Neither the steward 
or any of the Ipovie family have heard of him since he left Languedoc, and the Count is in great affliction about him, for he says he was always punctual in writing, but that now he has not received a line from him since he left Languedoc. He appointed to be at home three weeks ago, but he has neither come or written, and they fear some accident has befallen him. Alas, that ever I should live to cry for his death! I am old, and might have died without being missed, but he... Emily was faint, and asked for some water, and Teresa, alarmed by the voice in which she spoke, hastened to her assistance, and, while she held the water to Emily's lips, continued, My dear young mistress, do not take it so to heart. The Chevalier may be alive and well for all this. Let us hope the best. Oh, no, I cannot hope, said Emily. I am acquainted with circumstances that will not suffer me to hope. I am somewhat better now, and can hear what you have to say. Tell me, I entreat, the particulars of what you know. Stay, till you are a little better, mademoiselle. You look sadly. Oh no, Teresa, tell me all, while I have the power to hear it, said Emily. Tell me all, I conjure you. Well, madam, I will then. But the steward did not say much, for Richard says he seemed shy of talking about Monsieur Valancourt and what he gathered was from Gabriel, one of the servants, who said he had heard it from my lord's gentleman. "'What did he hear?' said Emily. "'Why, madam, Richard has but a bad memory, and could not remember half of it, and, if I had not asked him a great many questions, I should have heard little indeed. But he says that Gabriel said that he and all the other servants were in great trouble about Monsieur Valancourt, for that he was such a kind young gentleman. They all loved him, as well as if he had been their own brother.' And now, to think what was become of him, for he used to be so courteous to them all, and, if any of them had been in fault, Monsieur Valancourt was the first to persuade my lord to forgive them. And then, if any poor family was in distress, Monsieur Valancourt was the first, too, to relieve them, though some folks, not a great way off, could have afforded that much better than he. And then, said Gabriel, he was so gentle to everybody, and for all he had such a noble look with him, he never would command and call about him, as some of your quality people do, and we never minded him the less for that. Nay, says Gabriel, for that matter, we minded him the more, and would all have run to obey him at a word, sooner than if some folks had told us what to do at full length. Aye, and were more afraid of displeasing him, too, than of them that used rough words to us. Emily, who no longer considered it to be dangerous to listen to praise bestowed on Valancourt, did not attempt to interrupt Teresa, but sat, attentive to her words, though almost overwhelmed with grief. "'My lord,' continued Teresa, "'frets about Monsieur Valancourt sadly, and the more because, they say, he had been rather harsh against him lately. Gabriel says he had it from my lord's valet, that Monsieur Valancourt had comported himself wildly at Paris, and had spent a great deal of money, more a great deal than my lord liked, for he loves money better than Monsieur Valancourt.' who had been led astray sadly. Nay, for that matter, Monsieur Valancourt had been put into prison at Paris, and my lord, says Gabriel, refused to take him out, and said he deserved to suffer. And when old Grégoire, the butler, heard of this, he actually bought a walking-stick to take with him to Paris to visit his young master. But the next thing we hear is that Monsieur Valancourt is coming home. Oh, it was a joyful day when he came, but he was sadly altered, and my lord looked very cool upon him, and he was very sad indeed. And, soon after, he went away again into Languedoc, 
and since that time we have never seen him. Theresa paused, and Emily, sighing deeply, remained with her, eyes fixed upon the floor, without speaking. After a long pause, she inquired what further Theresa had heard. Yet why should I ask? she added. What you have already told is too much. Oh, Valancourt, thou art gone, forever gone, and I, I have murdered thee. These words, and the countenance of despair which accompanied them, alarmed Theresa, who began to fear that the shock of the intelligence Emily had just received had affected her senses. My dear young lady, be composed, said she, and do not say such frightful words. You murder, Monsieur Valancourt, dear heart. Emily replied only by a heavy sigh. Dear lady, it breaks my heart to see you look so, said Theresa. Do not sit with your eyes upon the ground, and all so pale and melancholy. It frightens me to see you. Emily was still silent, and did not appear to hear anything that was said to her. Besides, mademoiselle, continued Theresa, Monsieur Valancourt may be alive and merry yet, for what we know. At the mention of his name, Emily raised her eyes, and fixed them, in a wild gaze, upon Theresa, as if she was endeavouring to understand what had been said. "'Aye, my dear lady,' said Theresa, mistaking the meaning of this considerate air, "'Monsieur Valancourt may be alive and merry yet.' On the repetition of these words, Emily comprehended their import, but, instead of producing the effect intended, they seemed only to heighten her distress. She rose hastily from her chair, paced the little room with quick steps, and, often sighing deeply, clasped her hands and shuddered. Meanwhile, Theresa, with simple but honest affection, endeavoured to comfort her, put more wood on the fire, stirred it up into a brighter blaze, swept the hearth, set the chair, which Emily had left, in a warmer situation, and then drew forth from a cupboard a flask of wine. "'It's a stormy night, madam,' said she, "'and blows cold. Do come nearer the fire, and take a glass of this wine.' It will comfort you, as it has done me, often and often, for it is not such wine as one gets every day. It is rich Languedoc, and the last of six flasks that Monsieur Valancourt sent me, the night before he left Gascony for Paris. They have served me ever since as cordials, and I never drink it, but I think of him, and what kind words he said to me when he gave them. Teresa, says he, you are not young now, and should have a glass of good wine now and then. I will send you a few flasks, and, when you taste them, you will sometimes remember me your friend. Yes, those were his very words, me your friend. Emily still paced the room, without seeming to hear what Theresa said, who continued speaking. And I have remembered him, often enough, poor young gentleman, for he gave me this roof for a shelter, and that which has supported me. Ah, he is in heaven, with my blessed master, if ever saint was. Theresa's voice faltered. She wept and set down the flask, unable to pour out the wine. Her grief seemed to recall Emily from her own, who went towards her, but then stopped, and, having gazed on her for a moment, turned suddenly away, as if overwhelmed by the reflection that it was Valancourt whom Theresa lamented. While she yet paced the room, the still, soft note of an oboe, or flute, was heard mingling with a blast, the sweetness of which affected Emily's spirits. She paused a moment in attention. The tender notes, as they swelled along the wind, till they were lost again in the ruder gust, came with a plaintiveness that touched her heart, and she melted into tears. 
Aye, said Theresa, drying her eyes. There is Richard, our neighbor's son, playing on the oboe. It is sad enough to hear such sweet music now. Emily continued to weep without replying. He often plays of an evening, added Theresa. And sometimes the young folks dance to the sound of his oboe. But, dear young lady, do not cry so, and pray take a glass of this wine, continued she, pouring some into a glass and handing it to Emily, who reluctantly took it. Taste it for Monsieur Valancourt's sake, said Theresa, as Emily lifted the glass to her lips. For he gave it me, you know, madam. Emily's hand trembled, and she spilled the wine as she withdrew it from her lips. For whose sake? Who gave the wine? said she in a faltering voice. Monsieur Valancourt, dear lady, I knew you would be pleased with it. It is the last flask I have left. Emily set the wine upon the table and burst into tears, while Theresa, disappointed and alarmed, tried to comfort her. But she only waved her hand, entreated she might be left alone, and wept the more. A knock at the cottage door prevented Theresa from immediately obeying her mistress, and she was going to open it when Emily, checking her, requested she would not admit any person. But afterwards, recollecting that she had ordered her servant to attend her home, she said it was only Philippe, and endeavoured to restrain her tears while Theresa opened the door. A voice that spoke without drew Emily's attention. She listened, turned her eyes to the door when a person now appeared, and immediately a bright gleam that flashed from the fire discovered Valancourt. Emily, on perceiving him, started from her chair, trembled, and sinking into it again, became insensible to all around her. A scream from Theresa now told that she knew Valancourt, whom her imperfect sight and the duskiness of the place had prevented her from immediately recollecting, but his attention was immediately called from her to the person whom he saw falling from a chair near the fire, and hastening to her assistance, he perceived that he was supporting Emily. The various emotions that seized him upon thus unexpectedly meeting with her from whom he had believed he had parted for ever, and on beholding her pale and lifeless in his arms, may perhaps be imagined that they could neither be then expressed or now described any more than Emily's sensations when, at length, she unclosed her eyes and, looking up, again saw Valancourt. The intense anxiety with which he regarded her was instantly changed to an expression of mingled joy and tenderness, as his eye met hers, and he perceived that she was reviving. But he could only exclaim, Emily, as he silently watched her recovery, while she averted her eye and feebly attempted to withdraw her hand. But in these, the first moments which succeeded to the pangs his supposed death had occasioned her, she forgot every fault which had formerly claimed indignation and beholding Valancourt such as he had appeared when he won her early affection, she experienced emotions of only tenderness and joy. This, alas, was but the sunshine of a few short moments. Recollections rose like clouds upon her mind, and, darkening the elusive image that possessed it, she again beheld Valancourt degraded, Valancourt unworthy of the esteem and tenderness she had once bestowed upon him. Her spirits faltered, and, withdrawing her hand, she turned from him to conceal her grief, while he, yet more embarrassed and agitated, remained silent. A sense of what she owed to herself restrained her tears, and taught her soon to overcome, in some degree, the emotions of mingled joy and sorrow that contended at her heart, as she rose, and, having thanked him for the assistance he had given her, bade Theresa good evening. 
As she was leaving the cottage, Valancourt, who seemed suddenly awakened as from a dream, entreated, in a voice that pleaded powerfully for compassion, a few moments' attention. Emily's heart, perhaps, pleaded as powerfully, but she had resolution enough to resist both, together with the clamorous entreaties of Teresa that she would not venture home alone in the dark, and had already opened the cottage door when the pelting storm compelled her to obey their requests. Silent and embarrassed, she returned to the fire, while Valancourt, with increasing agitation, paced the room, as if he wished, yet feared, to speak, and Teresa expressed without restraint her joy and wonder upon seeing him. "'Dear heart, sir,' said she, "'I never was so surprised and overjoyed in my life. We were in great tribulation before you came, for we thought you were dead, and were talking and lamenting about you, just when you knocked at the door.' My young mistress there was crying, fit to break her heart. Emily looked with much displeasure at Teresa, but before she could speak, Valancourt, unable to repress the emotion which Teresa's imprudent discovery occasioned, exclaimed, Oh, my Emily, am I then still dear to you? Did you, indeed, honor me with a thought, a tear? Oh, heavens, you weep, you weep now. Teresa, sir, said Emily, with a reserved air, and trying to conquer her tears, has reason to remember you with gratitude, and she was concerned because she had not lately heard of you. Allow me to thank you for the kindness you have shown her, and to say that, since I am now upon the spot, she must not be further indebted to you. Emily, said Valancourt, no longer a master of his emotions, is it thus you meet him whom once you meant to honor with your hand? Thus you meet him who has loved you, suffered for you. Yet, what do I say? Pardon me, pardon me, Mademoiselle Saint-Aubert, I forfeited every pretension to your esteem, your love. Yes, let me not forget that I once possessed your affections, though to know that I have lost them is my severest affliction. Affliction, do I call it? That is a term of mildness. Dear heart, said Teresa, preventing Emily from replying. Talk of once having her affections. Why, my dear young lady loves you now, better than she does anybody in the whole world, though she pretends to deny it. This is insupportable, said Emily. Teresa, you know not what you say. Sir, if you respect my tranquillity, you will spare me from the continuance of this distress. I do respect your tranquillity too much voluntarily to interrupt it, replied Valancourt, in whose bosom pride now contended with tenderness, and will not be a voluntary intruder. I would have entreated a few moments' attention, yet I know not for what purpose. You have ceased to esteem me, and to recount to you my sufferings will degrade me more, without exciting even your pity. Yet I have been, O oh Emily, I am indeed very wretched, added Valancourt in a voice that softened from solemnity into grief. "'What? Is my dear young master going out in all this rain?' said Teresa. "'No, he shall not stir a step. Dear, dear, to see how gentlefolks can afford to throw away their happiness. Now, if you were poor people, there would be none of this. To talk of unworthiness and not caring about one another, when I know there are not such a kind-hearted lady and gentleman in the whole province.' nor any that love one another half so well, if the truth was spoken. Emily, in extreme vexation, now rose from her chair. "'I must be gone,' said she. "'The storm is over.' 
Stay, Emily. Stay, Mademoiselle St. Aubert, said Valancourt, summoning all his resolution. I will no longer distress you by my presence. Forgive me that I did not sooner obey you, and, if you can, sometimes pity one who, in losing you, has lost all hope of peace. May you be happy, Emily, however wretched I remain. Happy as my fondest wish would have you. His voice faltered with the last words, and his countenance changed, while, with a look of ineffable tenderness and grief, he gazed upon her for an instant, and then quitted the cottage. "'Dear heart! Dear heart!' cried Theresa, following him to the door. "'Why, Monsieur Valancourt, how it rains! What a night is this to turn him out in! Why, it will give him his death! And it was but now he was crying, mademoiselle, because he was dead! Well!' Young ladies do change their minds in a minute, as one may say. Emily made no reply, for she heard not what was said, while, lost in sorrow and thought, she remained in her chair by the fire, with her eyes fixed and the image of Valancourt still before them. Monsieur Valancourt is sadly altered, madame, said Theresa. He looks so thin to what he used to do, and so melancholy, and then he wears his arm in a sling. Emily raised her eyes at these words, for she had not observed this last circumstance, and she now did not doubt that Valancourt had received the shot of her gardener at Toulouse. With this conviction, her pity for him returning, she blamed herself for having occasioned him to leave the cottage during the storm. Soon after, her servants arrived with the carriage, and Emily, having censured Theresa for her thoughtless conversation to Valancourt, and strictly charging her never to repeat any hints of the same kind to him, withdrew to her home, thoughtful and disconsolate. Meanwhile, Valancourt had returned to a little inn of the village, whither he had arrived only a few moments before his visit to Therese's cottage, on the way from Toulouse to the Chateau of the Count de Duvarney, where it had not been since he bade adieu to Emily at Chateau Le Blanc, in the neighbourhood of which he had lingered for a considerable time, unable to summon resolution enough to quit a place that contained the object most dear to his heart. There were times, indeed, when grief and despair urged him to appear again before Emily, and, regardless of his ruined circumstances, to renew his suit. Pride, however, and the tenderness of his affection, which could not long endure the thought of involving her in his misfortunes, at length so far triumphed over passion that he relinquished this desperate design and quitted Chateau Le Blanc. But still his fancy wandered among the scenes which had witnessed his early love, and, on his way to Gascony, he stopped at Toulouse, where he remained when Emily arrived, concealing, yet indulging his melancholy in the gardens, where he had formerly passed with her so many happy hours, often returning, with vain regret, to the evening before her departure for Italy, when she had so unexpectedly met him on the terrace, and, endeavouring to recall to his memory every word and look which had then charmed him, the arguments he had employed to dissuade her from the journey, and the tenderness of their last farewell. In such melancholy recollections he had been indulging, when Emily unexpectedly arrived to him on this very terrace, the evening after her arrival at Toulouse. His emotions on thus seeing her can scarcely be imagined, but he so far overcame the first promptings of love that he forbore to discover himself, and abruptly quitted the gardens. Still, however, the vision he had seen haunted his mind. He became more wretched than before, and the only solace of his sorrow was to return in the silence of the night, to follow the path which he believed her steps had pressed during the day, and to watch round the habitation where she reposed. 
was in one of these mournful wanderings that he had received by the fire of the gardener, who mistook him for a robber, a wound in his arm, which had detained him at Toulouse till very lately, under the hands of a surgeon. There, regardless of himself, and careless of his friends, whose late unkindness had urged him to believe that they were indifferent as to his fate, he remained, without informing them of his situation. And now, being sufficiently recovered to bear travelling, he had taken La Vallée in his way to Estuvière, the Count's residence, partly for the purpose of hearing of Emily, and of being again near her, and partly for that of inquiring into the situation of poor old Theresa, who, he had reason to suppose, had been deprived of her stipend, small as it was, and which inquiry had brought him to her cottage when Emily happened to be there. This unexpected interview, which had at once shown him the tenderness of her love and the strength of her resolution, renewed all the acuteness of the despair that had attended their former separation, and which no effort of reason could teach him in these moments to subdue. Her image, her look, the tones of her voice, all dwelt on his fancy as powerfully as they had late appeared to his senses, and banished from his heart every emotion except those of love and despair. Before the evening concluded, he returned to Teresa's cottage, that he might hear her talk of Emily, and be in the place where she had so lately been. The joy felt and expressed by that faithful servant was quickly changed to sorrow when she observed, at one moment, his wild and frenzied look, and, at another, the dark melancholy that overhung him. After he had listened, and for a considerable time, to all she had to relate concerning Emily, he gave Theresa nearly all the money he had about him, though she repeatedly refused it, declaring that her mistress had amply supplied her once. And then, drawing a ring of value from his finger, he delivered it her with a solemn charge to present it to Emily, of whom he entreated, as a last favour, that she would preserve it for his sake, and sometimes, when she looked upon it, remember the unhappy giver. Theresa wept as she received the ring, but it was more from sympathy than from any presentiment of evil, and before she could reply, Valancourt abruptly left the cottage. She followed him to the door, calling upon his name and entreating him to return, but she received no answer, and saw him no more. End of Volume 4, Chapter 13 Recording by Anna Simon. The Mysteries of Odolfo by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 4, Chapter 14. Call up him that left half told the story of Cambuscan Bold. Milton. On the following morning, as Emily sat in the parlour adjoining the library, reflecting on the scene of the preceding night, Annette rushed wildly into the room and, without speaking, sunk breathless into a chair. It was some time before she could answer the anxious inquiries of Emily as to the occasion of her emotion, but at length she exclaimed, "'I have seen his ghost, madam! I have seen his ghost!' "'What do you mean?' said Emily, with extreme impatience. "'It came in from the hall, madam,' continued Annette, "'as I was crossing to the parlour.' "'Who are you speaking of?' repeated Emily. "'Who came in from the hall?' It was dressed just as I've seen him, often and often, added Annette. Ah, who could have thought? Emily's patience was now exhausted, and she was reprimanding her for such idle fancies, when a servant entered the room, and informed her that a stranger without begged leave to speak with her. 
it immediately occurred to Emily that this stranger was Valancourt, and she told the servant to inform him that she was engaged and could not see any person. The servant, having delivered his message, returned with one from the stranger, urging the first request, and saying that he had something of consequence to communicate, while Annette, who had hitherto sat silent and amazed, now started up, and crying, It is Ludovico! It is Ludovico! ran out of the room. Emily bade the servant follow her, and, if it really was Ludovico, to show him into the parlour. In a few minutes Ludovico appeared, accompanied by Annette, who, as joy rendered her forgetful of all rules of decorum towards her mistress, would not suffer any person to be heard for some time but herself. Emily expressed surprise and satisfaction on seeing Ludovico in safety, and the first emotions increased when he delivered letters from Count de Villefort and the Lady Blanche, informing her of their late adventure and of their present situation at an inn among the Pyrenees, where they had been detained by the illness of Monseigneur saint foy and the indisposition of Blanche, who added that the Baron saint foy was just arrived to attend his son to his chateau, where he would remain till the perfect recovery of his wounds, and then return to Languedoc, but that her father and herself proposed to be at La Vallée on the following day. She added that Emily's presence would be expected at the approaching nuptials, and begged she would be prepared to proceed in a few days to Chateau Le Blanc. For an account of Ludovico's adventure, she referred her to himself, and Emily, though much interested concerning the means by which he had disappeared from the North apartments, had the forbearance to suspend the gratification of her curiosity till he had taken some refreshment and had conversed with Annette, whose joy on seeing him in safety could not have been more extravagant had he arisen from the grave. Meanwhile, Emily perused again the letters of her friends, whose expressions of esteem and kindness were very necessary consolations to her heart, awakened as it was by the late interview to emotions of keener sorrow and regret. The invitation to Chateau Le Blanc was pressed with so much kindness by the Count and his daughter, who strengthened it by a message from the Countess, and the occasion of it was so important to her friend, that Emily could not refuse to accept it, nor, though she wished to remain in the quiet shades of her native home, could she avoid perceiving the impropriety of remaining there alone, since Valancourt was again in the neighbourhood. Sometimes, too, she thought that change of scenery and the society of her friends might contribute more than retirement, to restore her to tranquillity. When Ludovico again appeared, she had desired him to give a detail of his adventure in the North Apartments, and to tell by what means he became a companion of the banditti, with whom the Count had found him. He immediately obeyed, while Annette, who had not yet had leisure to ask him many questions on the subject, prepared to listen, with a countenance of extreme curiosity, venturing to remind her lady of her incredulity concerning spirits in the castle of Odolfo, and of her own sagacity in believing in them, while Emily, blushing at the consciousness of her late credulity, observed that if Ludovico's adventure could justify Annette's superstition, he had probably not been here to relate it. Ludovico smiled at Annette, and bowed to Emily, and then began as follows. You may remember, madam, that on the night when I sat up in the north chamber, my lord, the Count, and Monseigneur Henri, accompanied me thither, and that, while they remained there, nothing happened to excite any alarm. When they were gone, I made a fire in the bedroom, and, not being inclined to sleep, I sat down on the hearth with a book I had brought with me to divert my mind. I confess I did sometimes look round the chamber with something like apprehension. "'How very like it, I dare say,' interrupted Annette. And I dare say, too, if the truth was known, you shook from head to foot. 
Not quite so bad as that, replied Ludovico, smiling. But several times, as the wind whistled round the castle and shook the old casements, I did fancy I heard odd noises, and, once or twice, I got up and looked about me. But nothing was to be seen except the grim figures in the tapestry, which seemed to frown upon me as I looked at them. I had sat thus for above an hour, continued Ludovico, when again I thought I heard a noise, and glanced my eyes round the room to discover what it came from. But, not perceiving anything, I began to read again, and, when I had finished the story I was upon, I felt drowsy and dropped to sleep. But presently I was awakened by the noise I had heard before, and it seemed to come from that part of the chamber where the bed stood. And then, whether it was the story I had been reading that affected my spirits, or the strange reports that had been spread of these apartments, I don't know. But when I looked towards the bed again, I fancied I saw a man's face within the dusky curtains. At the mention of this, Emily trembled and looked anxiously, remembering the spectacle she had herself witnessed there with Dorothée. I confess, madam, my heart did fail me at that instant, continued Ludovico. But a return of the noise drew my attention from the bed, and I then distinctly heard a sound like that of a key turning in a lock. But what surprised me more was that I saw no door where the sound seemed to come from. In the next moment, however, the arras near the bed was slowly lifted, and a person appeared behind it, entering from a small door in the wall. He stood for a moment as if half retreating, with his head bending under the arras, which concealed the upper part of his face, except his eyes scowling beneath the tapestry as he held it. And then, while he raised it higher, I saw the face of another man behind, looking over his shoulder. I know not how it was, but, though my sword was upon the table before me, I had not the power just then to seize it, but sat quite still, watching them, with my eyes half shut, as if I was asleep. I suppose they thought me so, and were debating what they should do, for I heard them whisper, and they stood in the same posture for the value of a minute. And then I thought I perceived other faces in the duskiness beyond the door, and heard louder whispers. "'This door surprises me,' said Emily, "'because I understood that the Count had caused the arras to be lifted, and the walls examined, suspecting that they might have concealed a passage through which you had departed.' "'It does not appear so extraordinary to me, madam,' replied Ludovico, "'that this door should escape notice.' because it was formed in a narrow compartment which appeared to be part of the outward wall, and, if the Count had not passed over it, he might have thought it was useless to search for a door where it seemed as if no passage could communicate with one. But the truth was that the passage was formed within the wall itself. But to return to the man whom I saw obscurely beyond the door, and who did not suffer me to remain long in suspense concerning their design, they all rushed into the room and surrounded me, though not before I had snatched up my sword to defend myself. But what could one man do against four? They soon disarmed me, and, having fastened my arms and gagged my mouth, forced me through the private door, leaving my sword upon the table to assist, as they said, those who should come in the morning to look for me in fighting against the ghosts. They then led me through many narrow passages, cut, as I fancied, in the walls, for I had never seen them before, and down several flights of steps, till we came to the vaults underneath the castle, and then, opening a stone door, which I should have taken for the wall itself, we went through a long passage, and down other steps, cut in the solid rock, when another door delivered us into a cave. 
After turning and twining about for some time, we reached the mouth of it, and I found myself on the sea beach at the foot of the cliffs, with the chateau above. A boat was in waiting, into which the ruffians got, forcing me along with them, and we soon reached a small vessel that was at anchor, where other men appeared. When setting me aboard, two of the fellows had seized me, followed, and the other two rowed back to the shore while we set sail. I soon found out what all this meant, and what was the business of these men at the chateau. We landed in Océan, and, after lingering several days about the shore, some of their comrades came down from the mountains and carried me with them to the fort, where I remained till my lord so unexpectedly arrived, for they had taken good care to prevent my running away, having blindfolded me during the journey, and, if they had not done this, I think I never could have found my road to any town through the wild country we traversed. After I reached the fort, I was watched like a prisoner, and never suffered to go out without two or three companions, and I became so weary of life that I often wished to get rid of it. Well, but they let you talk, said Annette. They did not gag you after they got you away from the chateau, so I don't see what reason there was to be so very wary of living, to say nothing about the chance you had of seeing me again. Ludovico smiled, and Emily also, who inquired what was the motive of these men for carrying him off. I soon found out, madam, resumed Ludovico, that they were pirates who had, during many years, secreted their spoil in the vaults of the castle, which, being so near the sea, suited their purpose well. To prevent detection, they had tried to have it believed that the chateau was haunted, and, having discovered the private way to the north apartments, which had been shut up ever since the death of the Lady Marchioness, they easily succeeded. The housekeeper and her husband, who were the only persons that had inhabited the castle for some years, were so terrified by the strange noises they heard in the nights that they would live there no longer. A report soon went abroad that it was haunted, and the whole country believed this the more readily, I suppose, because it had been said that the Lady Marchioness had died in a strange way, and because my lord never would return to the place afterwards. "'But why?' said Emily. "'Were not these pirates contented with the cave? Why did they think it necessary to deposit their spoil in the castle?' "'The cave, madam,' replied Ludovico, "'was open to anybody, and their treasures would not long have remained undiscovered there.' but in the vaults they were secure so long as the report prevailed of their being haunted. Thus, then, it appears that they brought at midnight the spoil they took on the seas, and kept it till they had opportunities of disposing of it to advantage. The pirates were connected with Spanish smugglers and banditti, who live among the wilds of the Pyrenees, and carry on various kinds of traffic, such as nobody would think of, and with this desperate horde of banditti I remained till my lord arrived. I shall never forget what I felt when I first discovered him. I almost gave him up for lost. But I knew that, if I showed myself, the banditti would discover who he was, and probably murder us all, to prevent their secret in the chateau being detected. I, therefore, kept out of my lord's sight, but had a strict watch upon the ruffians, and determined, if they offered him or his family violence, to discover myself and fight for our lives. Soon after, I overheard some of them laying a most diabolical plan for the murder and plunder of the whole party, when I contrived to speak to some of my lord's attendants, telling them what was going forward, and we consulted what was best to be done. Meanwhile, my lord, alarmed at the absence of the Lady Blanche, demanded her, and the ruffians having given some unsatisfactory answer, my lord and Monsieur Saint-Foy became furious, 
So then we thought it a good time to discover the plot, and rushing into the chamber, I called out, Treachery, my lord count, defend yourself. His lordship and the chevalier drew their swords directly, and a hard battle we had, but we conquered at last, as, madam, you are already informed of by my lord count. This is an extraordinary adventure, said Emily, and much praise is due, Ludovico, to your prudence and intrepidity. There are some circumstances, however, concerning the north apartments, which still perplex me, but perhaps you may be able to explain them. Did you ever hear the banditti relate anything extraordinary of these rooms? No, madam, replied Ludovico. I never heard them speak about the rooms, except to laugh at the credulity of the old housekeeper, who once was very near catching one of the pirates. It was since the Count arrived at the chateau, he said, and he laughed heartily as he related the trick he had played off. A blush overspread Emily's cheek, and she impatiently desired Ludovico to explain himself. "'Why, my lady,' said he, "'as this fellow was one night in the bedroom, he heard somebody approaching through the next apartment, and not having time to lift up the arras and unfasten the door, he hid himself in the bed just by. There he lay for some time, in his greater fright, I suppose.' "'As you was in,' interrupted Annette, "'when you sat up so boldly to watch by yourself.' Aye, said Ludovico, in as great a fright as he ever made anybody else suffer, and presently the housekeeper and some other person came up to the bed, when he, thinking they were going to examine it, bethought him that his only chance of escaping detection was by terrifying them. So he lifted up the counterpane, but that did not do, till he raised his face above it, and then they both set off, he said, as if they had seen the devil, and he got out of the rooms undiscovered. Emily could not forbear smiling at this explanation of the deception which had given her so much superstitious terror, and was surprised that she could have suffered herself to be thus alarmed, till she considered that, when the mind has once begun to yield to the weakness of superstition, trifles impress it with the force of conviction. Still, however, she remembered with awe the mysterious music which had been heard at midnight near Chateau Le Blanc, and she asked Ludovico if he could give any explanation of it, but he could not. I only know, madam, he added, that it did not belong to the pirates, for I have heard them laugh about it, and say they believed the devil was in league with them there. Yes, I will answer for it, he was, said Annette, her countenance brightening. I was sure all along that he or his spirits had something to do with the north apartments, and now you see, madam, I am right at last. It cannot be denied that his spirits were very busy in that part of the chateau, replied Emily, smiling. But I am surprised, Ludovico, that these pirates should persevere in their schemes after the arrival of the Count. What could they expect but certain detection? I have reason to believe, madam, replied Ludovico, that it was their intention to persevere no longer than was necessary for the removal of the stores which were deposited in the vaults, and it appeared that they had been employed in doing so from within a short period after the Count's arrival. But as they had only a few hours in the night for this business, and were carrying on other schemes at the same time, the vaults were not above half emptied when they took me away. They gloried exceedingly in this opportunity of confirming the superstitious reports that had been spread of the North Chambers, were careful to leave everything there as they had found it, the better to promote the deception, and frequently, in their joker's moods, would laugh at the consternation which they believed the inhabitants of the castle had suffered upon my disappearing. 
and it was to prevent the possibility of my betraying their secret that they had removed me to such a distance. From that period they considered the chateau as nearly their own. But I found from the discourse of their comrades that, though they were cautious, at first, in showing their power there, they at once very nearly betrayed themselves. Going one night, as was their custom, to the north chambers to repeat the noises that had occasioned such alarm among the servants, they heard, as they were about to unfasten the secret door, voices in the bedroom. My lord has since told me that himself and Monsieur Henri were then in the apartment, and they heard very extraordinary sounds of lamentation, which it seems were made by these fellows, with their usual design of spreading terror. And my lord has owned he then felt somewhat more than surprise. But, as it was necessary to the peace of his family that no notice should be taken, he was silent on the subject, and enjoined silence to his son. Emily, recollecting the change that had appeared in the spirits of the Count after the night when he had watched in the north room, now perceived the cause of it, and, having made some further inquiries upon this strange affair, she dismissed Ludovico, and went to give orders for the accommodation of her friends on the following day. In the evening, Theresa, lame as she was, came to deliver the ring with which Valancourt had entrusted her, and, when she presented it, Emily was much affected, for she remembered to have seen him wear it often in happier days. She was, however, much displeased that Theresa had received it, and positively refused to accept it herself, though to have done so would have afforded her a melancholy pleasure. Theresa entreated, expostulated, and then described the distress of Valancourt when he had given the ring, and repeated the message with which he had commissioned her to deliver it. And Emily could not conceal the extreme sorrow this recital occasioned her, but wept, and remained lost in thought. "'Alas, my dear young lady,' said Theresa, "'why should all this be? I have known you from your infancy, and it may well be supposed I love you as if you was my own, and wish as much to see you happy.' Monsieur Valancourt, to be sure, I have not known so long, but then I have reason to love him as though he was my own son. I know how well you love one another, or why all this weeping and wailing? Emily waved her hand for Theresa to be silent, who, disregarding the signal, continued, And how much you are alike in your tempers and ways, and that, if you were married, you would be the happiest couple in the whole province. Then what is there to prevent your marrying? Dear, dear, to see how some people fling away their happiness, and then cry and lament about it, just as if it was not their own doing, and as if there was more pleasure in wailing and weeping than in being at peace. Learning, to be sure, is a fine thing, but if it teaches folks no better than that, why, I'd rather be without it. If it would teach them to be happier, I would say something to it. Then it would be learning and wisdom, too." Age and long services had given Theresa a privilege to talk, but Emily now endeavoured to check her loquacity, and, though she felt the justness of some of her remarks, did not choose to explain the circumstances that had determined her conduct towards Valancourt. She therefore only told Theresa that it would much displease her to hear the subject renewed, that she had reasons for her conduct, which she did not think it proper to mention and that the ring must be returned with an assurance that she could not accept it with propriety. And at the same time she forbade Theresa to repeat any future message from Valancourt, as she valued her esteem and kindness. Theresa was afflicted, and made another attempt, though feeble, to interest her for Valancourt, 
but the unusual displeasure expressed in Emily's countenance soon obliged her to desist, and she departed in wonder and lamentation. To relieve her mind, in some degree, from the painful recollections that intruded upon it, Emily busied herself in preparations for the journey into Languedoc, and, while Annette, who assisted her, spoke with joy and affection of the safe return of Ludovico, she was considering how she might best promote their happiness, and determined, if it appeared, that his affection was as unchanged as that of the simple and honest Annette, to give her a marriage portion, and settle them on some part of her estate. Three considerations led her to the remembrance of her father's paternal domain, which his affairs had formerly compelled him to dispose of to Monsieur Quenel, and which he frequently wished to regain, because Saint-Aubert had lamented that the chief lands of his ancestors had passed into another family, and because they had been his birthplace and the haunt of his early years. To the estate at Toulouse she had no peculiar attachment, and it was her wish to dispose of this, that she might purchase her paternal domains, if Monsieur Quenel could be prevailed on to part with them, which, as he talked much of living in Italy, did not appear very improbable. End of Volume 4, Chapter 14 Recording by Ted Nugent The Mysterious of Udol 4 by Anne Redcliffe Volume 4, Chapter 15 Sweet is the breath of vernal shower, The bees collected treasures sweet, Sweet music's melting fall, but sweeter yet, the still, small voice of gratitude, Gray. On the following day, the arrival of her friend revived the drooping Emily, and La Vonglet became, once more, the scene of social kindness and of elegant hospitality. Illness and the terror she has suffered has stolen from Blanche much of her sprightliness, but all her affectionate simplicity remained. And though she appears less blooming, she was not less engaging than before. The unfortunate adventure on the Pyrenees had made the Count very anxious to reach home, and after a little more than a week's stay at La Vonglet, Emily prepared to set out with her friends for Languedoc, assigning the care of her house during her absence to Teresa. On the evening preceding her departure, this old servant brought again the ring of Valancourt, and with tears entreated her mistress to receive it, for that she had neither seen nor heard of Monsieur Valancourt since the night when he delivered it to her. As she said this, her countenance expressed more alarm than she dared to utter, but Emily, checking her own propensity to fear, considered that he had probably returned to the residence of his brother, and again, refusing to accept the ring, bade Teresa preserve it till she saw him, which, with extreme reluctance, she promised to do. On the following day, Count de Vinfort, with Emily and the Lady Blanche, left La Vonlay, and on the ensuing evening arrived at the Chateau Le Blanc, where the Countess, Henry, and Monsieur Dupont, whom Emily was surprised to find there, received them with much joy and congratulation. She was concerned to observe that the Count still encouraged the hopes of his friend, 
whose countenance declared that his affection had suffered no abatement from absence, and was much distressed when on the second evening after her arrival, the Count, having withdrawn her from the Lady Blanche, with whom she was walking, renewed the subject of Monsieur Dupont's hopes. The mildness with which she listened to his intercession at first deceiving him. As to her sentiments, he began to believe that her affection for Volancourt being overcome, she was at length disposed to think favourably of Monsieur Dupont, and when she afterwards convinced him of his mistake, he ventured in the earnestness of his wish to promote what he considered to be the happiness of two persons, whom he so much esteemed, gently to remonstrate with her on those suffering an ill-placed affection to poison the happiness of her most valuable years. Observing her silence and the deep dejection of her countenance, he concluded with saying, I will not say more now, but I will still believe, my dear Mademoiselle saint over that you will not always reject a person so truly estimable as my friend Dupont. He spared her the pain of replying by leaving her, and she strolled on, somewhat displeased with the Count for having preserved to plead for a suit which she had repeatedly rejected, and lost amidst the melancholy recollections which this topic has revived, till she had insensibly reached the borders of the wood that screened the monastery of St. Clare, when, perceiving how far she had wandered, she determined to extend her work a little further, and to inquire about the abbess and some of her friends among the nuns. Though the evening was now drawing to a close, she accepted the invitation of the friar who opened the gate, and anxious to meet some of her old acquaintances, proceeded towards the convent parlour. As she crossed the lawn, the slope from the front of the monastery toward the sea, she was struck with a picture of repose exhibited by some monks sitting in the cloisters, which extended under the brow of the woods that crowned this eminence, where, as they mediated, at this twilight hour, holy subjects, they sometimes suffered their attention to be relieved by the scene before them, nor thought it profane to look at nature. Now that it had exchanged the brilliant colors of day for the sober hue of evening, before the cloisters, however, spread an ancient chestnut whose emblem branches were designed to screen the full magnificence of a scene that might tempt the wish to the worldly pleasures. But still, beneath the dark and spreading foliage gleamed a wide extent of ocean and many a passing sail. Why, to the right and left, thick woods were seen stretching along the winding shores, so much as this has been admitted, perhaps, to give to the secluded watery an image of the dangers and vicissitudes of life, and to console him, now that he had renounced its pleasures, by the certainty of having escaped its evils.
as Emily walked pensively along, considering how much suffering she might have escaped had she become a votaress of the order and remained in this retirement from the time of her father's death. The vessel bell struck up, and the monks retired slowly towards the chapel, while she, pursuing her way, entered the great hall, where an unusual silence seemed to reign. The parlor, too, which opened from it, she found vacant, but as the evening bell was sounding, she believed the nuns had withdrawn into the chapel and sat down to rest for a moment before she returned to the chateau, where, however, the increasing gloom made her now anxious to be. Not many minutes had elapsed before a nun, entering in haste, inquired for the abbess and was now retiring without recollecting Emily, when she made herself known and then learned that the mass was going to be performed for the soul of Sister Agni, who has been declining for some time and who was now believed to be dying. Of her sufferings, the sister gave a melancholy account and of the horrors into which she had frequently started, but which has now yielded to a dejection so gloomy that neither the prayers in which she was joined by the sisterhood or the assurances of her confessor had power to recall her from it and, or to cheer her mind even with the momentary gleam of comfort. To this relation, Emily listened with extreme concern, and, recollecting the frenzied manners and the expressions of horror which she had herself witnessed of Agni, together with the history that Sister Frances had communicated, her compassion was heightened to a very painful degree. As the evening was already far advanced, Emily did not now desire to see her or to join in the mass, and after leaving many kind remembrances with the nun for her old friends, she quitted the monastery and returned over the cliffs towards the chateau, meditating upon what she had just heard, till at length she forced her mind upon less interesting subjects. The wind was high, and as she drew near the chateau, she often paused to listen to its awful sound as it swept over the billow that beat bellow or groaned along the surrounding woods. And while she rested on a cliff at a short distance from the chateau and looked upon the wide waters seen dimly beneath the last shade of the twilight, she thought of the following address. To the winds. Viewless through heaven's vast ball, your course is here. Unknown from whence you come or with the go, mysterious powers, I hear your murmur low. Till swell your loud gust on my startled ear, and awful seem to say some god is near. I love to list your midnight float voices floats in the dread storm that over the ocean rolls, and, while their charm the angry wave controls, 
mix with sullen roar and sink remote, then rising in the force a sweeter note, the dirge of spirits who your deeds bewail, a sweeter note of swell, while sleeps the gale, but soon your power, sightless powers, your rest is over, solemn and slow, your rise upon the air, speak in the swell, and beat the sea boy fear, and the faint wobble dirge, it is heard no more, oh, then I deprecate your awful rain, the loud lament is, bear not on your breath, bear not the crash of bark, Far on the main, be not the cry of men who cry in vain. The crew's breath chorus sinking into death. Oh, give not this, your powers I ask alone. As rapt I climb these dark romantic steeps, the elemental war, the billows mourn. I ask the still sweet tear that listening fancy weeps. End of Volume 4, Chapter 15